And he says, I can't hear you. What's your name? And he spoke a little bit louder. And he said, Alexander. He says, That's, I still can't understand you. What is your name? And he said, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him and he said, you either need to change your name or you need to change your conduct. You see, he was bearing the same name, same name as Alexander the Great, but this man was Alexander the Coward, and he was in his army, out serving and, and promoting him, and he says, you need to change your name or you need to change your conduct, and as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. And how we conduct ourselves in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, at our schools, are a reflection upon the Lord whose name that we bear. In 2007, the Barna Group produced a survey where they asked non-Christians why they reject Christianity. And 85% of non-Christians said, because Christians are hypocrites. Because the name that we say that we follow, we don't. Because our conduct doesn't match up with who we say that we are. And so some of us either need to change our name or we need to change our conduct. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the early church, and he says to them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so he says, you, church, are a royal priesthood. You, church, are a holy nation. You, church, are a people for his possession. All of this means that you are set apart so that you would proclaim his praises, so that you would be a witness to a lost world of the God who called you out of darkness and into the light. Now, if you go back to the King James Version, that phrase there that says, a people for his possession, it says, a peculiar people. That you would be a peculiar people. That, that means that you are his, that you are his possession, that you are different. And the, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they were different than all the nations around them. They looked different. They behaved different. They worshiped different. And he says to the church here that you ought to be like that. A peculiar people. And the problem with American Christianity today is not that we're too peculiar. It's that we look too much just like the world. And so today we're going to continue our series through the book of Hebrews. And we, we're coming to the end of this letter. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 today. And He's going to give us a lot of instructions like you often find at the end of letters in the New Testament. But what he's showing them and calling them to today is a better conduct. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I ask that you stand in honor of God's word. If you're able, Hebrews chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 1. 
the Word of God says, Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Thank you. You may be seated. The action step for us today as we take this word and, and apply it into our lives this morning is that we would display the gospel with your conduct. That you would display the gospel with your conduct. That your life would be a witness, that it would point people to the Savior. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to break it down into two points the standard of our conduct, and the motive of our conduct. And so we'll begin with the standard of our conduct. And chapter 13 flows out of the end of chapter 12. So if you go back to the end of chapter 12 and verse 28, this is what the word says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. And so he says that we are to serve God acceptably. So what does that look like? How is it that, that you and I serve God acceptably? When you read through the Gospels, when you read through the New Testament epistles, you'll find all sorts of teachings, all sorts of examples of how followers of Jesus should live. Of what followers of Jesus should look like. And as you come here into chapter 13, the author of Hebrews is given all sorts of instructions. And these commands show us a standard of conduct. It shows us how we are set apart as followers of Christ. It shows us how we look different from the world. It shows us how we are a peculiar people. And it's clear that our lives are to be a reflection of the holiness of the God that we serve. That they should be a reflection of the gospel. And as you go through these instructions, they're sort of given rapid fire. He's moving from one subject to the next in quick succession. And all of it is painting a picture for us to say you ought to look like this. 
And so as you think about your life and how it measures up against these various things that he's talking about, he's saying it ought to look like this. And many of these instructions are given with the admonition for us to continue or to remember. He, he says that often in this passage. And so he's, tell, he's not telling them, you know, do this one time. He's telling them, do this all the time. Continue to do this. Remember to do this. This should be your habit. It should be your character. It should be your lifestyle. And so the first instruction he gives is found in verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. So we can't talk about serving God without talking about loving other people. You love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so he's here talking about loving others, and he specifically uses the Greek word there, phileo, which is translated as brotherly love. And so the brothers are the church, He's talking about how we as the church ought to relate to one another, that we are to love the church, to be faithful, ministering to others in the church, to show love, to show commitment to one another, to pray and teach and worship and work alongside of one another, and to be faithful in that work. We don't view it as a a sort of one-time thing and then we just move on. As a body of believers, we are committed to one another and tied to one another in the love of Christ. But for many, post-COVID in the United States, commitment to the church is at an all-time low. You see, we're not just a, a random group of people who happened into the same building today. We are brothers and sisters who are here for one another. And so he tells us to continue in brotherly love. But secondly, he, there in verse 2, gives another instruction. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, a lot of people view this verse with skepticism, Right? Yeah, we, we've entertained angels. Yeah, that's, that's, that's funny. But there's lots of examples of it when you read through the scriptures. It, it occurred in Genesis 18 with Abraham. It occurred in Judges 6 with Gideon. It occurred in Judges 13 with Manoah. And so if you believe in the supernatural, then this certainly could still happen today. If you believe that the Bible's true, anybody? Okay, if we believe the Bible's true, then you certainly could entertain angels. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. But I don't think that's the point in what he's talking about. The key in the verse is that we're not to neglect to show hospitality. And so he's telling them to show hospitality because, he says, you'll be reaching out to strangers. He says you might entertain angels that you don't know. He's talking about reaching out to strangers. And so he had just talked to them about showing brotherly love to the church, but now he's talking about showing hospitality, showing love to those outside the church. Show them the love of Christ so that they would trust in Christ, that they would be born again, that they would be saved, that they would be welcomed into the brotherly love of the fellowship of the church. 
Because, you see, hospitality is much greater for us as, as Jesus followers than just a, some southern trait. It is a gospel witness that we show hospitality and kindness to people that we don't know. It's easy to love people that you know. It's easy to love people that you like. But he's calling us to show love to people that you don't know, that you don't like, to strangers. See, lost people aren't our enemy, they're our mission field. And so here he's calling us to be a peculiar people. If you love people that you don't know, that's peculiar in this world. Verse 3, remember those in prison as, those, as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Now, back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the author of Hebrews commends them for caring for prisoners. He says, you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. And so this is obviously something that the Hebrew Christians were already doing. They were already ministering to, to those that were in prison. But he's calling for them to be steady in it. He says to remember, don't forget, don't stop doing it. But this verse is about more than just prisoners because he also says, and the mistreated. The mistreated. These are the people that are the helpless. These are the people that are the vulnerable. These are the people that aren't able to stand up for themselves. This is about speaking up for the unborn. This is about taking care of orphans. This is about ministering and looking out for widows. This is about caring for people who are bullied. This is about ministering to the down and out. This is about taking care of the addicted. You see, Jesus didn't overlook the outcast. He looked for them. And so he's calling us to be Faithful in our ministry to those who are mistreated. When you care for people that nobody else cares about, it's peculiar. Verse 4. Marriage is to be honored by all. The marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. You can't talk about serving God without talking about taking care of your own family. And in the New Testament, in the epistles, this picture, this, this marriage covenant is often used as a picture of the covenant that, that God makes with, with the church, how he loves the church. In Ephesians 5.22, he tells wives to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And down in verse 25, he tells husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so he says this is a picture of the gospel. That our lives ought to, our conduct ought to be a picture of the gospel. And that includes our marriages. And, and what we find here is that the marriage covenant is esteemed by God. And so when you look at requirements for pastors in the New Testament, when you look at requirements for deacons in the New Testament, you see that this sort of marital Love, this sort of, of uh, covenant keeping in marriage is a requirement for them. 
But what he shows us here is that it's expected of all those who are followers of Jesus. That the covenant of marriage would be honored and revered and respected. That marriage is a spiritual promise that's to be kept. It's not a secular contract that you throw away when you get tired of it or when things start to get hard. We fight for our marriages and pray for our spouses and forgive one another and show grace to one another when you're wronged. We work hard together so that our marriage glorifies God. And I can assure you that if you will do that, that's peculiar in this world. But instead what we find is that statistics reveal that divorce within those who claim to be Christians versus divorce among those who don't claim to be Christians are statistically the same. It's not peculiar. It's not set apart. But our home and our family is our first order of ministry. Your wife or your husband is your first area of service. Your children have been entrusted to you by God. And so Christian families ought to function differently. They ought to look different than the world. And so we have to be faithful to serve our families and to help them grow in their faith. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters, that you cannot serve both God and money. The author of Hebrews here calls for us to trust in God, to believe that God will be faithful to us. And so instead of loving money, instead of pursuing money and wanting more and more and never being satisfied, you're content with what you have and believe and trust God will provide for you because, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you but what we often find are that the desires the ambitions the greed the avarice among Christians looks just like what you see among lost people we're not peculiar verse 7 remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. And so the author here calls for Christians to follow after their leaders. Now we know that in our nation there's this this sort of general distrust of authority. This general rebellion against anything that would be an authority in our lives. But here he says, no, be peculiar, follow your leaders 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, he says, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so he's saying that to those whom God has placed in positions of leadership and authority, they ought to be honored. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that, that they ever do or every decision they ever make or bow down before them or even put them up on a pedestal. But you are to respect them. 
And he calls for the people to remember them and to imitate them. And so that means that if you have leaders who love God and who serve God and who are faithful in all these areas that, that we've been talking about, then those are leaders that should be honored. But he also says that to those who are in positions of leadership, he's reminding us of our responsibility to lead well. Because he's calling for the church to carefully observe the outcome of your life and to imitate your faith. And so that means you need to have a faith that's worth imitating. You hear me, pastors? Are you listening, deacons? Are you listening, connect group leaders and women's ministry leaders and men's ministry leaders and student leaders and children's leaders? We need to have a faith that's worth imitating. We need to be faithful to God, to his word, growing in our personal walk, leading, challenging others in their faith. That is peculiar. And so why do we have this standard of conduct for followers of Jesus? The answer is there in verse 8. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. We're not talking about a moving target that we're trying to hit. God hasn't moved the goalpost on us. He's always been the same. The standard of holiness has always been the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if there's anyone who is truly faithful, it's Christ. He's our example in steadfastness. He is our source of strength in godly conduct. And so we, therefore, can be faithful in brotherly love and in hospitality and in ministry and in marital love and in trusting God and in leadership because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we then will display his gospel with our conduct. And so this is the standard of conduct. This is the picture. He says, it ought to look like this. But when you get to verse 9, the passage sort of shifts. And it shifts from what we ought to do to, to why we do it. The motive of conduct. It's not just like the old bracelets, what would Jesus do, right? He's talking about why would Jesus do it? Why would we behave in this way? Because the Jews, remember the background of this passage, these are Jewish background Christians that are being tempted and drawn back into Judaism. The Jews certainly believe that their lives should honor God, that their behavior should, should honor God. Christians believe the same thing. So what's the difference? It's the motive. Because these Jews believe that they, they had to keep the law to, to honor God. But Christians believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly and we honor God through our faith in him, standing as our substitute and as our representative. So how does our conduct then relate to all these laws and sacrifices? In verse 9, he tells us, Do not be led astray by various kinds of strange teaching. For it's good for the heart to be established by grace 
and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. And so the author here is making a specific mention of teaching that's confronting these early Christians, these Jews that had rejected Christ and that are calling them back into ritual Judaism, he begins, to, they, you can sort of surmise what assaults or what arguments they're launching against these early Christians by what he says. They're being told that they need to adhere to dietary laws, obviously. They're told that Christianity was inferior because they didn't have an altar that they could go worship at like the Jews did. That's what he's responding to here. But he responds with force in verse 9 because he says, it's good for the heart to be established by what? By grace and not by food regulations. What's the difference? What's the motive? For, for Christians, we have received grace. We're putting our faith in Christ. The heart is established by the grace of God, not by doing and keeping these things, by eating the right things and not eating the wrong things. Because he says those who were so occupied with foods were not benefited. But for those who have trusted in the grace of God and Christ Jesus, we have found salvation. He says these Jews, they may have an altar that the priests go minister to at the temple, but in verse 10 he says, we have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. He's referring there to Christ. Christ is the altar to which Christians come to worship. In the Old Testament, the altar was the meeting place between God and man. That place is now Christ. He's the mediator between God and man. But he doesn't stop there in showing us how we have a better hope. This is where it gets so good in verse 11. He says, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. And so he's going back again. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. He's talked about this at other times in the book of Hebrews, but now he's bringing it to, to a head here. And he's referring to this Old Testament ritual where the priest would make the sacrifice for the sin of the people. And they would bring that blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. They would sprinkle it over the Ark of the Covenant there on the mercy seat. And there they would cry out, to God on the day of atonement that he would show them mercy and forgive them of their sins. But he says here that the body of that animal that was sacrificed would be taken outside of the camp and burned. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 7 through 10, as he's given instructions here in the book of the law about the day of atonement, we see that there were actually two animals that were there. He says in verse 7, Next he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And after Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other for an uninhabitable place. He's to present the goat that's chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. This is the one we were just talking about, where they, they sacrifice this animal, they take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. But in verse 10 he says, but the goat that's chosen by Lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it 
by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. So one was slaughtered, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the priest would cry out to God to show mercy to the people because of the blood of the sacrifice. But then there's this second animal. And one author says that the Lord was showing the people by personal experience what had taken place secretly. He appointed a ceremony to publicize what had been affected by the blood on the mercy seat. The public ritual stresses the truth of substitution. The laying on of hands, they would literally put their hands on the head of the animal. Laying on of hands expressed the transfer of sin from the guilty to the innocent. So that the latter actually becomes a sin bearer. And atonement finally and irreversibly puts sin away. And the sin bearer goes never to return to the wilderness. This is where the concept of the scapegoat comes from, okay? This is where the people would take the one animal, and this is all in a place where they don't see, where the blood is being sprinkled on the mercy seat. But here they're seeing it. They're putting their hand on the animal, and it's a picture of the sin of the people being placed on this animal, and he is cast out into the wilderness, to the faraway desert place, showing that your sin is going away from you, is being removed from you. And the people would literally boo and hiss and throw rocks at the animal as it was going out because they hated their sin and they saw it being taken away from them. Outside of the camp is unclean. Inside of the camp is clean. And so the scapegoat would bear the sin far away out into the desert place. This is why this is important. Verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Did you ever notice that in the gospel? They give us a very specific detail, and they give it to us for a reason, that he carried the cross outside the city gates to be crucified at Golgotha. And as he was there, the people mocked him and booed him and threw things at him and chastised him as well. And so in Christ, you have the fulfillment of the animal who was sacrificed, whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. But in Christ, you also have the fulfillment of the scapegoat who goes outside of the city to bear away the sins of the people. Then in verse 13, the author of Hebrews gives us a really interesting command. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For the Hebrew people, the Day of Atonement was this enormous relief (laughs) because the blood was being sprinkled on the mercy seat and God was showing mercy and forgiveness for their sin. They literally saw the animal going away, a picture of their sin being removed from them. They would never go out to get to the goat. They were glad that the goat was gone, that their sin was gone. But instead here of rejoicing in the shame of the scapegoat, he calls us to go out to him, to identify with him, to bear his reproach because he's our only hope. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Peter writes, Instead rejoice as you share in the suffering of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. 
If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. You have that name. And so we're to rejoice in the blood of the Lamb of God because it's our peace and our joy and our salvation. So why is it that we behave the way that we do? What is the motive for our conduct? It has nothing to do with earning favor. It has nothing to do with self-righteousness, with keeping and ticking off these parts of the law. And it has everything to do with honoring our Christ who redeemed us and saved us from our sins. The one who shed his blood to make us clean. The one who bore our sin and our shame outside the camp. We live for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15 says that he died for all. So that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for the one who died for them and was raised. We don't live for ourselves. We live for him we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him we say for me to live is Christ and so our conduct is about worshiping our Lord who's worthy it's an act of worship and so what about your life and your conduct isn't bringing honor to Christ what is it about your thoughts that isn't glorifying God what is it about your mouth that's not exalting the Lord what is it about your actions isn't pointing people to the Savior we either need to change our name or we need to change our conduct because we're called to display the gospel with our lives so Christians this is our action step today and perhaps as you examine your life and think over your heart, you find that there are things there that don't measure up with the standard of conduct. He says, this is what it ought to look like, and you know that it doesn't look like that. Today, you can come to this altar during this time of response and confess those things to the Lord. You can call on him, repent of these sins in your life. The good news is that we have a faithful high priest who cleanses us of all unrighteousness and who calls us into fellowship with him. But we're to be a peculiar people who point people to Jesus. And so if your life isn't doing that, then you need to get it right. And so perhaps you want to spend some time this morning praying, seeking, asking the Lord. To do this work in your heart. There may be others this morning who need to call on Jesus as your Savior for the first time. I just told all these folks this, that are followers of Jesus that you can call on Jesus and you can have forgiveness. And they can. Because they have a relationship with him. But Today I want you to know that you can have a relationship with him as well. That Jesus is that atoning sacrifice whose blood was shed to pay the price for your sins. Jesus is that scapegoat that bore your sin 
in his body on the cross. And that today you can have real forgiveness from your sin. Today you can have life because even though he died, on the third day he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death for you. And so today you can have this life if you'll put your faith in Jesus to save you. And so that might be a decision that you need to make. And we're going to have leaders here across the front in a minute as we stand and sing. And you can come and share with them about this decision that the Lord is working in your heart. But however God is speaking to you, now is the time for us to be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the challenge that you've put before us today. Lord, to be a peculiar people. Lord, to be set apart. To have better conduct. Not because we're trying to be self-righteous, but because our lives are a living sacrifice, an act of worship unto you. And because you're worthy of all of our love and devotion and obedience. And so God, I pray today that you would work in, in our hearts or to show us ways that our, that our conduct doesn't display your gospel, that it doesn't honor you. And Lord, that we be faithful to repent and to confess and to strive after righteousness and holiness in our lives so that we would show people who you are. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that have never made this decision in their heart to call on you as their Savior, to find forgiveness in you. I pray that today they would realize that this invitation is for them to come and to find forgiveness and salvation this morning in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.